Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, an exciting founder. I think that his story is going to resonate, you know, very much with all of us and with all of you, especially that are listening right now. Uh, and really on the on the process of being persistent, on on really focused on on the big vision and you know execution and not taking a no for an answer. But I think that you know we're really going to learn a lot. But without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Jake. Weatherly, welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Huge fan and uh, just so flattered to have the opportunity to speak with you today. So thank you. Thank you, Jake. So so originally born and raised in a small town in Michigan. So how was life growing up in, in a small town there? Yeah, this is true. Um, it was really cold during the winters. You know, one high school town. So a lot of the people who I went to kindergarten with, uh, I graduated with. Um, but also access to uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which interestingly is a liberal island in a conservative sea where the University of Michigan is and a really inspiring place to be. So I would say kind of best of both worlds. And obviously there, your father a builder, your mom a teacher. So I guess what what did you, you know, what, what were some of those insights, you know, perhaps from seeing your father building stuff or from seeing your mom, you know, teaching things, you know, like what? What did you really get from that? Yeah, you know what? And, and uh, this might sound a little bit harsh, but I uh, am so thankful for it every day. Uh, watching my dad as a builder, you know, coming home exhausted through, you know, rain, sleet, snow and, and hot, humid summers. One of the things that he taught me and really kind of over and over drove into me is that he wanted me to work with my mind, not with my hands. And unfortunately, in his uh, late 30s, he had back problems, um, you know, couldn't pound nails and, uh, and carry lumber around any longer, and so had to kind of reinvent himself. Uh, and so that really resonated with me and, and became part of my core, my foundation. Uh, I would say the other thing is there are some things that I think are almost untrainable or unteachable, things like honesty integrity, work ethic. Um, one of the things that I learned uh, watching my father work so hard was basically the harder you work, the better you are. 
And I know that may sound kind of judgmental or old school, but uh, there's just no replacement for good old fashioned hard work. And so I feel really fortunate to have come up in that environment. Very cool. And obviously here, you know, like being in a small town, you perhaps, perhaps at that moment, you know, like you were wondering, you know, maybe I got to also expand, you know, like my, my views and, 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 and the landscape. So I believe that there was a conversation with your parents about potentially going overseas. What happened It's there? true. Yeah, I put together a PowerPoint presentation when I was a junior in high school and sat down with my parents. <laughs> and the thesis was, you know, I've met all of these kids who have moved to our town from other states and other cities, and I've watched them make new friends, and I've watched them, you know, develop their social skills, and I'm realizing that I haven't had that opportunity. And so, you know, flip to the next slide. Here's my proposed solution. Uh, I think that I should go to Europe and be an exchange student for my senior year. And their jaws dropped, and they said, okay, so what do we do as next steps? And I had applied in the background for a scholarship because we were, uh, you know, a lower middle class family in order to be able to fund this. Uh, and I went in and I won the scholarship. And a few months later, I was jumping on an airplane for my first time and uh, flying over to Germany. Wow. So how would you say that being there in Germany, you know, changed or altered things for you? Just, I mean, rapid, rapid expansion of the mind, right? Learning a new language, being in a fundamentally different culture, Uh, living with a host family, uh, that experience is one that is just, it informs me every day. And I think it expanded my horizons and my comfort zone and allowed me to understand a little bit more about the way the world works rather than how things are in, you know, a, a small town. Uh, and I just, you know, I would never, never go back and do it a different way. Very cool. And you also were a ski racer. And so obviously that uh, competitiveness How, how would you say that has shaped you uh, and especially also, you know, has uh, pushed you towards entrepreneurship? You know, I think with ski racing, I think it's somewhat similar to track and field, um, swimming, some of these other competitive disciplines where in the end it is, yes, a team sport and everybody's uh, times count toward, you know, the team goal. Uh, but really it's, it's you as an individual against the clock, right? You can't lean on a team member Uh, and pass it to them to score the goal. You basically have to do your best every time. And it can be uh, lonely. It can feel really scary. And it's also pretty risky to, you know, go 50 miles an hour plus down an icy ski mountain. And so I think for me, what that helped me develop was this uh, tolerance uh, for risk and an ability to overcome your fear and, you know, just dig in and, and go. Uh, unfortunately, I had a big crash and destroyed my shoulder. And so I had to uh, retire as a ski racer. But I'll say, you know, every single time in the starting gates, whether I turned in a great time or not so good or blew out of the course, every single one of those experiences uh, pushed my comfort zone, you know, out further and further. And I think that, again, helped contribute to this foundation that led me to entrepreneurship. Absolutely. And I think that entrepreneurship, you know, it's, a, it's obviously not a straight line. You know, you're going you're gonna to fall. You need to get back up. And, and it's about failing and learning from it, reflecting, and then continue to, to move forward. I guess in this case, you know, probably you were, because things in life pa pa happen for a reason, right? And there's a lesson for us to be learned. And 
And especially, you know, I like to learn, you know, what was that lesson for you here about, you know, going from competitive, you know, like skiing to all of a sudden massive injury. This is not something that you can do, you know, again. And, you know, what was the lesson there about bouncing back? Yeah, I think it, it shows the importance of certain aspects and in absolute lack of importance of others, right? So as a young ski racer, you project yourself out into, you know, World Cup, skiing the Alps, and maybe an Olympics, all of these things, and you're training, you know, you're just diehard focused on this one singular goal. And what it helped me understand is that those things, the, the end goal wasn't important. It was the journey, you know, learning to get up early in the morning and stay very, very disciplined in training and working out and, you know, learning to uh, be, you know, uncomfortable in a situation that maybe you couldn't uh, control. Uh, those things, I think, are absolutely um, things that translate to the rest of life, while at the time they feel like they're only related to the singular focus uh, that is, you know, that athletic discipline. And obviously that uncomfortableness and that exploring the unknown, perhaps, you know, like was a trigger, you know, when you sat down with your then girlfriend and obviously now wife at the time and, and when you, you know, pulled the trigger on moving to Oregon. So yeah. tell us about this. It's true. So my wife wanted to be a teacher. The University of Oregon's uh, education program uh, was one of the best at the time. Um, and so uh, we packed her car with everything we owned and headed to Oregon sight unseen. Uh, landed in September and I got my first job in, in software and technology uh, in October, uh, literally doing telephone technical support uh, part-time. And obviously here, before you started your own business, Sheer ID, you did uh, you know a couple of rodeos, uh, one with Palo Alto Software and then the other one with Webex, you know, where you also were able to experience the acquisition. But I think you really here took into into consideration the advice that or the insight that you got from your father, you know, from working, you know, with with your own hands to really working with your mind and perhaps thinking about ways in which you could do it in a scalable manner. So uh, tell us about this. Yeah, that's exactly true. What I learned during my early days at Palo Alto Software, because I was immersed in entrepreneurship, I was providing support for entrepreneurs who were doing financial forecasting and getting a business plan ready in order to go out and seek funding. And I would say I learned a couple of things. One, I started to see this pattern that the successful entrepreneurs were actually fueled by hearing the answer no right? Going in to get a loan, going in to pitch for funding and hearing no, it, it fueled them to try harder, to get better, to tune more specifically, etc. And so hearing no and being fueled to, to do better, work harder was something that was just so surprising and inspiring to me. Um, the other thing that I learned during that time is that you truly can create value out of thin air. And what I mean by that is, you know, growing up in the Midwest, um, you know, near the auto industry and, and a lot of manufacturing and those kinds of things, everything seemed to be focused on, you know, physical product, raw materials, supply chain, all of these different aspects. And what I learned in software is that an idea 
can turn into code. Code can turn into an application, and that application can deliver value and uh, and return value. And so, I just remember having this light bulb moment that you know, like an author, like someone creating podcasts, and like a software engineer or architect, you really can create value based on theory and an idea, and and you can grow that, and it's actually a lot more scalable than you know, adding the next manufacturing line to increase production. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I guess, uh, you know, after this, you know, like during the, the first rodeo that you did here with Palo Alto software, then you started using WebEx, you fell in love with it and you actually loved it so much that you ended up working with the company. I, I guess that, you know, at this time, it was a very interesting moment as well for the business because it went through the acquisition of, uh, you know, via, via Cisco, Cisco acquired the business. So, yeah. so I guess, you know, like perhaps, you know, this also gave you the full view because in Palo Alto Software, you were servicing entrepreneurs, you know, that were in the process of building their materials and things like that. But here you finally, you know, like are able to really, you know, be part of the, of the operating side and seeing the full cycle of, you know, going from beginning all the way to the finish line of an acquisition. So what kind of insights did you get from that? Yeah, you know, I, and what I was doing there, and, and this was also really purposeful, kind of, you know, back to uh, wanting to be an exchange student, uh, I went there to sell. And I went there to sell to uh, enterprise organizations. And so what I learned was the importance of the accuracy of forecasting and quality of a pipeline, quality of a sales organization and a go-to-market strategy is the difference between a successful growing company and a roller coaster experience. And we were super, super successful, um, led by David Berman, who went on to do Ring Central and then Zoom, just an absolute, absolutely amazing leader. What I found was the importance of, of getting deals done and, you know, and, and hitting numbers. Um, it's the difference between an attractive and thriving business and something that's still, I would say, an experiment. Interesting. So obviously after this, you know, once, uh, once the company got acquired, then you returned back to Palo Alto Software. I did. Uh, I then after... to Palo Alto Software in order to lead um, sales support and service through a new uh, growth stage. And I went there because there was just endless potential. You know, I knew the product. I knew the market. Uh, the team that was there had, had accomplished some really amazing innovations moving from a box client-side software to a software-as-a-service and subscription-based business model. Uh, and so I just saw this uh, huge new horizon in an organization and a market that, that I was familiar with. And I decided to jump in, uh, you know, full on. Very cool. And obviously during this time, you know, right after this is when you became a professor to and this was a pivotal moment for you because at this time, you know, with your students and then also with family members, you started to be exposed to how people were sharing stuff and, and sensitive documents in a way that got you uncomfortable and perhaps to incubate what would be, you know, your 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 company. So uh, so what happened there? Yeah, that's exactly true. So as my wife was getting her classroom ready year after year, 
Uh, my father-in-law, who's a veteran, uh, also experienced this. And then, as you said, the students in the class that I was teaching were also experiencing this. They basically were being marketed to uh, in an uninvited way as a student, as a teacher, as a military veteran, et cetera, um, with programs that were specially designed for them. You know, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do in the community or, you know, you're a student, you need to get ready for this class. We know it's hard. You don't have a lot of money and we want to recognize you, honor you and help you with free products, free services, discount programs, etc. And what I found in all of these cases was that the last step or handful of steps in the customer experience involved vastly inappropriate sharing of personally identifiable information like social security numbers, class schedules, pay stubs, uh, formal military documentation. Um, and so these programs that were designed to recognize and honor because marketers didn't want to invite fraud, in fact, couldn't invite people to game the system, they had to protect it. And the ways that they were protecting were actually insulting these potential customers or existing customers uh, by asking them to share highly sensitive, personally identifiable information. So as I saw this pattern with so many different market segments or, or what we call tribes, um, I just started to see that the intent of the program uh, was to you know, grow the business and develop brand equity, but the reality of what was happening was actually quite the opposite. And so um, David Shear and I came together and we just started to incubate this thing and we started to think through how could this customer friction be removed from the equation, but still, uh, how could fraud not be uh, invited? And so what we came up with was this theory that there is a record somewhere in an authoritative database to answer these questions, these eligibility questions. And that record needs to be unlocked by a software platform that has the end user, the person who's represented by that record, on the other side saying, I want you to verify this about me. I want you to know this about me. Okay. So then, so then what happened next? So we started uh, talking with uh, our potential data partners. Specifically, we wanted to start with verification of military and verification of student enrollment because we saw such big programs out there uh, that had such poor negative uh, results or customer experience kind of built in. And so we started talking with the registrars at universities. Uh, we started flying to Washington, D.C. And, uh, and going to the Pentagon and talking to Department of Defense officials who we could get meetings with. And we just kept running into brick walls. And we realized that those brick walls had to do with assumptions on their part that in hindsight, um, I think were really astute and intelligent because of the way that data was being handled back then. Those assumptions were that, you know, David and Jake are coming in to try and uh, make a copy of all of our data and then sell it to everybody under the sun for marketing purposes. The reality is we were trying to do something quite different. We were trying to unlock an ability for an individual to verify something about themselves and to keep fraud out of the equation. The people who used to be students or the people who you know, pose as military or something along those lines, it's just unacceptable that they could come through and enjoy these benefits. 
And so we finally, at a university uh, on the West Coast, had like the perfect meeting with the registrar. And we watched the light bulb go off over her head. And that was this, this guiding light that we needed because everything else was a no, maybe later, or I don't think I understand. And finally, somebody got it. And it fueled us to double down and, and keep going. So there was literally like a hundred no's that you got to that uh, to that year. So so I guess, what did you learn about persistence? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that came from selling at WebEx, right? A, a good a good conversion metric is you know a 15 percent conversion metric. So you're literally having ninety nine conversations to get one maybe. Um, the problem was there really weren't all that many opportunities. So you get a hundred no's to get the one maybe, and you know how many more do you have to get two maybes or one yes. Um, but you just gotta keep going, especially if you have the conviction that what you're doing is the right thing to do, that it's gonna be well received. And, and if you have prospective customers who are saying, yes, not only do I think that's a good idea, but I would actually open my wallet and pay for it in order to bring it into my company or into my customer experience or, or my uh, you know, backend processes. So those things really had to come together in order for us to keep pursuing it uh, with some real lows on the way that were you know, pretty scary. So then, so then in this sense, what ended up being the business model? Um, so we were able to connect to enough data in order to bring a verification platform to market. And we approached the brands who had uh, programs designed for these specific tribes already in place. Uh, Foot Locker, um, Spotify, uh, and a few other early big accounts that we were able to integrate with and supercharge their programs. And so with Foot Locker, it felt so risky at the time. We went into Foot Locker and said, we'll integrate into your point of sale system in order to stop what we believe is a tremendous amount of fraud in your military program. Um, their military program is a 10% discount on all purchases for those who are serving or have served in the military. And there were basically people asking for the military discount, getting the wink and nod, and peeling 10% off their purchase price. At Spotify, it was pretty early still, and they knew that they wanted the next generation of music listeners, people who were still downloading songs for free using file sharing programs. They wanted them to be subscribers, unlimited music, full catalog. Um, and so the compelling way that Spotify strategized they could get these young audiences to subscribe was to deeply discount the subscription price. And they needed verification because they knew they couldn't wake up the next morning and suddenly everybody's a student getting 50% off. And so we were able to get those early wins, build a real business, get beyond a million dollars in annual revenue, and then go out and supercharge it with, uh, with VC money, with institutional investment. And talking about institutional investment, you guys have raised quite a bit. How much money have you guys raised? Uh, we've raised just under $100 million to date. Very nice. And obviously everything, you know, got kickstarted because I find that, you know, raising money to certain degrees like a snowball effect, you know, the toughest one is to get the first ones in 
And then once you get the first ones in, you know, like they bring their own networks and it's just like a, a snowball that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But in your case, you know, like there was a pivotal moment and you received a business card, you know, at a, at a, at a, at the incubator. So this, this bootcamp that was organized by an incubator. So what was that moment like? Yeah, that's correct. We decided to go to an incubator because we basically wanted to accelerate the mistakes that we knew we would make with people who had, you know, kind of been there and, and done that with experienced people surrounding us and coaching us through. And after the 90-day boot camp that we went through, uh, led by Steve Morris at the OTBC in Oregon, um, there was a pitch fest, an event that evening. And we pitched and then went into a room where interested potential investors, service providers, et cetera, were invited to engage with, uh, with the company. And we had this sea of people come into the room. It was just so flattering and exciting. And it's almost like the, the sea parted and this arm comes shooting through the crowd with a business card in her hand. And she looks at me, hands me the business card, and she goes, you need to call me. And she turned around and she left the event. We realized in hindsight that it was Diane Freeman, who's a partner at Voyager Capital headquartered in Seattle some huge winds in the Pacific Northwest and, and all over, um, but a very, very strong thesis and early thesis around institutional investment in technology companies um, in the Portland area. And so she was like the one. And little did we know, a uh, couple of years later, as we started to raise our Series A, um, she went all in and led the round. And I remember her saying when we pitched, uh, she said, do you realize how rare it is for a team to come in and pitch me a couple of years after getting to know me and all of the things that they worked on in those early stages have become true. You built what you set out to do and it's working and I want to lead your series A. Wow. So obviously it took a couple of years. You know, it's interesting here because you know, typically what, what happens is that you meet an investor and, you know, the founder always does the same thing is just tries to get the pitch. They can shove it down the throat of the investor. But I think that in this case, you know, like you did it the right way, uh, which is really to, to, to deliver on your promises and over time, just let the investor come through. So, so how was that process? How did you really build the trust, the relationship? How did you, you know, really put together the strategy of following up? What did that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think just totally authentically, I was really eager from time to time to get advice, to bounce ideas off of Diane and, and the Voyager team. Um, and so I would regularly connect with Diane, either via telephone call or in person over coffee or a meal together. And I was always super concise with the thing that I wanted to brainstorm about or ask her advice about or, you know, the two different directions that I saw we could go in. Uh, and so we built a real relationship that was based on, I would say, in, in overused terms, but like real collaboration and real partnership. And I was never asking for money. I was asking for advice because David and I, from the very beginning, we agreed that we were setting out to build a real business with real customers and real revenues and real repeatable processes. And we didn't want to go and raise a ton of money from an institutional investor and have 
their influence and their uh, impact on the board and those kinds of things until we knew that we really had product market fit. I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs who go out and raise in order to experiment and try and find product market fit. My advice is to bootstrap, to find a small group of angels, whether friends and family or, uh, you know, professional angel investors in your area and fund it that way until you really have something that you can grow rather than experimenting using other people's money. And, and that's, that's a very good way opinion, to put it. it. It really worked well for us. That's a very, very good way to put it. And I guess, um, you know, in terms of product market fit, you know, at what point do you know that you have product market fit? Um, I would say, you know, first year go to market four customers, second year, 10 customers. Um, then our customers were doubling, tripling, quadrupling, um, you know, from the revenue point of view and from their commitment level um, to Sheer ID. And so I think it was with that. I think it was with that growth from the existing customer base plus new customer acquisition that we knew we had something. We literally, for our first few years in business, never lost a customer and we grew the the business 10x. Um, And so we knew that it wasn't like a burn and turn, small transactional sign up, get the first year of subscription and then cross your fingers for the renewal kind of business. But instead, it was a land and expand business. We needed to prove that to ourselves. We needed the customers to truly prove that. And frankly, we needed the metrics in order to have a compelling, investable opportunity um, that was you know, in a class that is, I think, expected these days uh, by institutional investors. Very nice. Very nice. And obviously now you've done your A, your B, your C. Would you say that that relationship building and the follow-up, you know, has been the same or given perhaps the changes on expectations from financing cycle to financing cycle, perhaps, you know, it, it changed a bit? Yeah, that's a great question. So our Series B was led by um, Santana. Um, growth partners, and specifically Eric Bean uh, is our board director. It's another one where I cultivated a real relationship specifically focused on um, theories and ideas that we had in how Sheer ID could help uh, in the financial services industry uh, with basically new account acquisition and uh, you know thin credit, no credit, um, but they're you know a full-time student at a highly reputable university that generally delivers awesome outcomes, or they're an employee here, even though they haven't taken out big loans in the past. And so Eric Bean and I uh, met from time to time to discuss that landscape, to discuss how much financial services are investing in innovation versus building in-house. And when it came time to raise our Series B, he was the first one I called. And part of the reason behind that is because it's it's a relationship that's built on trust and it's a relationship that's built on working well together. Those are the things that lead to a true partnership. And I've always wanted to work with people who I knew I could call on during challenging times. And I knew would call on me during challenging times, but also we would celebrate wins together. Um, our Series C was quite different. Um, Series C for Sheer ID was much more unit economics and metrics based, I would say a much more mature and sophisticated pitch when you get to that level is is necessary. 
Um, where are you going to put investment dollars to work? And how much growth will that generate in an as predictable and repeatable model as possible? And so uh, that experience was very, very different than our Series A and Series B and was much more of a traditional go-to-market. We had a lot of competitive term sheets. We were able to be um, selective about who we chose to go with for our Series C, which is a really great position to be in. Um, but one thing that I think is noteworthy and, and might be helpful um, to the audience, and that is last year, beginning of 2019, we really started to see real signs of potential economic downturn. We knew with a U.S. election coming up, things could get really complex or, or uh, risky. Uh, in terms of the the flow of capital, um, certainly we didn't anticipate a, a virus, um, you know, traveling the the globe so quickly. But because of the potential economic downturn and because of the geopolitical uncertainties, we decided to raise our Series C early. We had a lot of cash in the bank. We had great relationships with our bankers uh, for. Uh, extension of runway if we chose to go that route. But we knew that Sheer ID had a ton of growth potential and that we wanted to raise when we didn't need it. And so we went out, even though we had closed our Series B only about a year before, uh, and, and we went to market. And I have to say, you know, sitting here today with 140 team members who are all working from home with our offices shut down uh, and with all of these challenges that everybody's experiencing uh, based on COVID-19. I'm really glad that we did that because Sheer ID is super, super healthy financially. We've got a bunch of cash in the bank and we have a growing and thriving business. And I would not want to be out there in a cash need situation trying to raise right now. So I just feel really fortunate that we made that decision, even though I think it was seen as somewhat controversial at the time. Well, talking about timing, right? So, and I know that for fundraising, timing is everything. It so, is. You really have to trust your gut. Yeah. So, I mean, in this case, I mean, was that like a conversation that you guys, you know, had at a board level and then eventually you just pulled the trigger on it? Because, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing, you know, how you guys executed on this. Yeah, it was. It was a series of conversations internally uh, with the exec team, uh, a series of uh, proof points uh, in terms of unsolicited inbound opportunities for raising a Series C. And with that information, uh, a series of discussions at the board level. Very nice. Very nice. So so I guess uh, let's say you were going to sleep tonight, Jake, and you wake up in a world, let's say in five years, where the vision of Sheer ID is completely realized. What does that world look like? You know, what we've set out to do, and, and I don't want to sound uh, like really corny here, but it's just the truth. We believe that in a world that's becoming more and more digital, and I would say it's like highlighted right now, right? With like stores closing, restaurants closing, etc. In a world that's becoming more and more digital, we think, yes, there is a certain place for anonymity um, online and, and via mobile. But we believe more and more that uh, that verified trust or trust then verify 
um, is just absolutely critical, right? We need to be able to create trust in a digital world. It needs to be invited. And then on top of that, all of the things that happen in, in marketing, specifically consumer marketing, where information is gathered in an uninvited way about you, and then you're basically followed digitally through your, your online and mobile experience, we just think that's creepy. And what we're seeing is the power of invited personalization, the power of an individual saying, I want you to know this about me. I want you to verify it because I'm excited to create a relationship with you, or I'm excited to participate in the program that's on the other side of this verification. We just think that's so powerful. And so we want to go as far as, in essence, being a trust standard uh, for people's digital lives, whether it's in e-commerce, whether it's signing up for a subscription for streaming media, whether it's opening a bank account, you know, uh, signing up for a cell phone plan or an internet service provider. Uh, it, we really think it should be everywhere. And, and we feel like we're making progress toward that goal. Very cool. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've been at it now for, for quite a bit, you know, with the business all the way since 2011. Uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, and yep. perhaps, you know, you have a chance to speak with that, you know, younger self, that younger Jake, that is uh, still a professor and, you know, like starting to see what this problem looks like and, and maybe thinking about the possibility of of launching a business. Knowing what you know now, if you had an opportunity to have a discussion with that younger Jake and give that younger Jake one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Focus. One simple word, focus. It's so easy to get super, super excited about the potential of being everything to everyone and you know, chasing the next bright, shiny object, whether it's you know changing the product roadmap or um, trying to engage in a you know, new industry and establish a beachhead. Bottom line, focus. What focus leads to is celebrating a real sense of accomplishment instead of celebrating early just because somebody answered an email or you know, celebrating the real growth with a real customer instead of the growth of a theoretical pipeline with deals that aren't going to close in that early stage. So again, I would just say focus. Love it. Love it. So for the folks that are listening, Jake, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Hey, direct via email, jake at sheerid.com. Uh, certainly a website. Um, and then you can find me in social media, um, Twitter at Jake Weatherly, uh, LinkedIn, Jake Weatherly, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing. Well, Jake, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for the opportunity. I'm such a fan, and now I'm excited to be alumni. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.